This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. So if you have a Bible, please open it up to Mark chapter 12. You'll see the words on the screen behind me as well. Mark chapter 12. We're going to read the first 10 verses of a passage that is usually described and may well be in the heading in your Bible as the parable of the wicked tenants. But I prefer to call it the parable of the renters from hell because these are some really terrible people that we're going to read about this afternoon. So, Mark chapter 12, the first 12 verses. Listen to the word of the Lord. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This is the word of God for us this afternoon. And here Jesus teaches us a parable. And if a parable is a new word for you, it's very simple. It's just a story that Jesus takes from everyday life to teach a spiritual truth. And these are not nice little nursery tales. These stories very often have a sting to them. And this story has a very big sting indeed. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders may be wicked, but they are not stupid. And they know darn well that Jesus is speaking this parable against them. It's a very pointed story. Now, our context of our story, if I can remind you from last week, is that the authority of Jesus is being questioned. He went into the temple and he flung those tables over and he whipped out the money changers And the the priests are coming to Jesus saying, what authority do you have to do this? How dare you come into the temple of God and start such a ruckus? What is your authority? And Jesus refuses to answer their question because they are not asking in good faith. 
And then Jesus tells them this, this story, this parable, which is all about who has authority, who is the true owner of the vineyard. So Jesus begins his story. It's a man who plants a vineyard. Planting a vineyard is no easy task. This is not like other kinds of agriculture where you just take a square of dirt and you measure it out and you say, let's throw some seeds in there and get this thing going. Planting a vineyard is painful, difficult, and laborious work. It takes years of effort. For this man to have planted a vineyard meant he would have had to take a hillside and terrace it, make it into steps up along the hillside. He would have had to painfully, sweatingly taken out stone after stone to clear it so that there would be good soil. He would have had to set up an elaborate irrigation system because because vines need lots of steady water. And then this man takes these stones and he builds a wall. He lugs these heavy stones across the vineyard and he starts plunking them down along the road to build a thick, high wall. And he probably would have taken this um, very spiny, prickly bush and attached it to the top so that no animal or person could climb over to invade the vineyard and steal its produce. Not only that, this man has even built a pit for the wine press, a place where the grape juice can flow into when the workers are trotting down the grapes. He builds a pit for the wine press, and he even builds a watchtower. Not a simple wooden hut that would have done for most vineyards This guy is going to the utmost lengths to build the perfect vineyard. And he builds a watchtower, a place where workers can retreat to in the heat of the day to recover from their labor, and a place during the vintage, the harvest time, where they can watch day and night to make sure that no one is going to sneak into the vineyard and strip them of their wealth. This guy has gone to great lengths to set up his vineyard. And there has been a heavy initial outlay in money, in time, and in effort to get this vineyard going. This is no easy job that Jesus is describing. And after all this work of setting up the vineyard, the owner rents it out to some farmers, perhaps some other farmers in the village. They sign a contract, a lease agreement. He gives the guys the key to the gate, shows them how everything works, and then he leaves. He moves somewhere else. And then the story goes on. But first we have to notice, this guy is handing over a vineyard in grade A condition. This is a top-notch vineyard. Now, most of us here are renters in Tbilisi, and some of us may have gotten a very good place to live. Others, you might have signed your agreement and then discovered our oven is only two-thirds the size of a normal oven. We can barely get a chicken inside this thing. This is our last place. We had a heater plugged into the wall, an electric heater that caught on fire in the middle of the night and nearly incinerated us all. There were a few things lacking in our tenancy that we did not realize at the time, but shortly did. This is not the kind of thing that this owner is setting up. He is creating a vineyard that has every chance of success. He's buying top-notch stuff. He's putting every effort into making this a superb vineyard that has no excuse for not being fruitful. In fact, he is giving these tenant farmers a turnkey operation. Turn the key, and it gets going. Press the green button, and the thing starts off. All these guys have to do is to tend the vines with the equipment that this person has set up, and assuredly, in due time, this is going to be a very fruitful vineyard. 
And sure enough, this is, this is what happens. But let's just pause here a second and ask ourselves about the meaning of this parable, because there's all sorts of little details that we have to start pulling out. The vineyard in the Old Testament is a frequent figure for the people of Israel. Israel is God's vineyard. And Psalm 80, for example, says this about God. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. Israel was God's vineyard, and he had given Israel every possible opportunity for success. They had cried out to him in anguish in the land of Egypt when they were in slavery, building structures for Pharaoh. And God had heard their cry, and with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he had rescued them. They had seen signs and wonders as God had showed up to this miserable peasant surf people and rescued them. They had seen Pharaoh and his chariots cast into the sea as the Red Sea closed behind them after Israel had passed through on dry land. God had gone with them as a cloud of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. He had guided them through the wilderness. He had shown up on Mount Sinai and given them his law, the perfect way to live. If only they would keep it, they would experience blessing and fruitfulness and life and happiness. And then he had taken them over the Jordan River and God had gone before them. They saw the walls of Jericho collapse as they blew the trumpet. And time after time, the Lord of hosts went before the people of Israel and drove out their enemies before them. God had taken Israel from slavery and planted them in a land of milk and honey. He had set them up with everything they needed for success, for fruitfulness, and for happiness. They had every possible advantage that God could give them. And only, if only they faithfully kept God's commandments, they could expect good things. And God could receive from them the fruit he was looking for, lives that were pleasing to him. This is the setup. And here in this story, as we'll see, the tenants, the farmers, are the religious leaders of Israel. This parable is not a parable against the vineyard. It's not a parable against Israel. It's against the ones who are supposed to tend Israel and care for it and guard it and prune it and make sure that it bore fruit. He was not telling this story against the crowds. He was telling it against the priests, the scribes, and the elders of Israel who were entrusted with guiding and guarding God's people. So here's this vineyard. It's set up. The agreement is signed, the keys are handed over, and the owner goes away. After a time, quite a long time, it would have taken five years for this vineyard to become fruitful. After four or five years, the owner decides, it's time to send my servant and collect the fruit that I'm owed. Some of the fruit, not all of it, a percentage of the fruit as per their agreement or probably the cash equivalent. He sends his agent to the farm, to the vineyard, to collect What is justly due him as per the rental agreement? Up to this time, the landlord has had zero return on his investment. He has poured a ton into setting up this vineyard, and so far he has received nothing from it. He's patiently been waiting for a return on his investment. And of course, why wouldn't he? He has every right to receive some of the fruit of the vineyard, doesn't he? This is his land. He was the one who terraced the land, who 
cleared out all the stones, who planted the vines, who built the wall, who erected the watchtower, who dug the wine press. He has done all the work, and he deserves some of the fruit of his labors, does he not? Plus, of course, he has not forced anyone into this agreement. These farmers have freely signed on the dotted line. No one was holding a gun to their head. They freely entered into this agreement, this covenant with the owner of the vineyard. And so God has a just claim on his vineyard. God has a just claim on this world. God has created this world, and he has every right to expect from us, the tenants of his world, to give him some fruit from his labor especially the people that God has redeemed, the people that God has expended tremendous effort to save and to make his people. God has every right to expect from you fruit, a life pleasing to him. That is not an outrageous, ridiculous demand from God. That is just the obligation that we all owe God in the natural course of things. God created us, He protected us, he provided for us, and he has redeemed us. And we owe God everything. Now, what Jesus is describing here is a well-known system in this time of absentee landowners sending their agents to collect rent from tenant farmers. The age of small family plots has long since vanished for hundreds of years. Now there are large farms with small farm workers renting the land. But this is not exactly easy passive income. I have some friends who rented out, they bought a house and they rented it out thinking, you know what, all we have to do is collect the rental checks every month. This will be easy money. Do you know what? It rarely is. Renters are often a giant pain in the neck. And the money you receive from them every month often is not worth all the headache you get from these people. They're calling you at all, all sorts of hours with odd problems and plumbing things and electrical things and stuff that needs to be fixed. They're growing marijuana in your basement. They trash the place, and then they leave without paying their rent. That's often what it's like for landlords. It's a big pain. It's not passive income at all. And in these times, these tenancy agreements sometimes erupted into violence. There were squabbles, and we have records of these squabbles sometimes over seemingly small things, like what are we going to do with the branches that are left on the ground? Who do they belong to? And sometimes these small disagreements over the years flared up and burned into major, major conflict. And we have stories of landlords who are hiring assassins to get rid of bad tenants. They're not responding to the eviction notice. I'm going to meet a guy in a, in a, in a pub, and we're going to, he'll know what to do, and he'll take care of my renters. That is a tough world that people were living in. Now, we have a few issues with our landlords from time to time. Our landlady is not too happy about, you know, the mess that our dog leaves upstairs, and we have a few small issues. But, you know, I wouldn't run down our landlady's daughter in the street, mostly because we use Taxify, and they don't tend to, you know, respond immediately to those kind of requests. But... (laughs) Our disagreements rarely erupt into violence, but in this time, it was, it was not unheard of. And so this landlord is dealing with, as it turns out, some nightmare tenants. And these tenants seem to have had no intention of paying the rent. I don't know if this was a later development or even while they were signing the contract, they had plans, but they have no, no intention of paying the rent. They have not seen the owner for years. He's gone away one year, two years, three years, four years, 
five years. This guy seems to be out of the picture. They're left alone. They've got the keys to the vineyard. They're the ones doing everything. And they feel, hey, possession is nine-tenths of the law. We're the ones in the vineyard. We're here. We're camped out. We're living in the watchtower. We've got the walls around us. This is our vineyard. We're doing all the work. And they begin to convince each other that, that having to pay rent to a landlord is outrageous. It's unjust. This is an imposition. And they tear up the contract and they refuse to recognize his ownership in any way. And he sends servant after servant and you see this escalation of violence, don't you? Servant number one is beaten and he's sent away empty-handed. They pay their rent in blows. Servant number two comes, they strike this guy on the head. He's bleeding from the head and Jesus tells us they treated him shamefully. They did something terrible to insult him and strip him of his honor, and he gets sent away. And then the third servant, the third agent comes, and now this guy is murdered. The tenants kill the agent. And the irony is they feel very secure because they're behind the wall that the landowner built, and they're up in the watchtower that the owner has erected, and they feel safe and secure against the landowner. Now, Jesus' meaning is clear because he's talking about the servants being the prophets of the Old Testament. In fact, and these prophets are sent by God again and again to call the people of Israel to repentance, to require the fruits that God had commanded her to produce. Uh, Here's an example from Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah says this, the prophet, from the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, Again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets, but they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. This is the story of the Old Testament that Jesus is telling us in 12 verses. The The sad, grievous story of the Old Testament in miniature in this parable. And amazingly, you would think that after even one or two servants or three servants, that the master would have had enough. The landowner would have had it up to here. But Jesus goes on to tell us that he sent many others. Servant after servant, agent after agent is sent to this property and is rejected, beaten, or killed by these wicked tenants. And here we see the superhuman patience of God. God is incredibly patient far beyond the patience of the most patient person in this world. And God persists in seeking out repentance and truth and goodness from his people. And again and again, God pleads with his people, turn to me, don't die, live, come to me, reason, let's reason together, and we can become friends again. And these people become increasingly hardened in their resistance their, heart, their hearts are petrifying and turning to stone, and they, they dig down in their resistance and their rebellion against the owner of the vineyard. And what we're seeing here is not unique to the people of the Old Testament. This is not unique to Israel, because at the root of all sin is rebellion against God's authority. It's a refusal to recognize that God owns the vineyard. And that he has every right to collect the rent from me. This goes all the way back to the beginning, doesn't it? In the Garden of Eden, what was the first sin? Adam and Eve taking fruit that was meant to be withheld for the owner of the garden. 
here we are, people. We live in this beautiful world that God has created for us. And our lives are filled with good things. We feel the warmth of the sun on our cheek. We feel the breeze through our hair. We have food in our bellies. And God has set up our lives. He set up your life with every condition you need for happy, thankful obedience. Everything has been set up for you. But our evil hearts resent living under obligation to someone else. We hate the idea that we have to pay rent and that we're under authority. We want to be the ones who own the vineyard. We want to be the ones in charge. We want to be the final authority over our lives. And we hate the idea of someone prying and interfering and telling us what to do. And we feel like, hey, we've been possessing this vineyard for a long time. The owner hasn't shown up. This belongs to us now. And so we resist the messengers that God sends us with his claim over our life. Now, it's really important that we notice that Jesus is not talking to irreligious pagans here. He's not talking to idol-worshiping Greeks or Romans or some savage barbarians. He is talking to the people of God. In fact, he's not just talking to the people of God, but he is talking to the religious leaders, the priests, the scribes, the elders, the people who were the most religious of all. And these leaders had an elaborate show of morality and outward obedience. They went to incredible lengths to follow all their detailed little laws to make it seem like they had things under control. But do you know what? Their hearts were far from God. Their hearts were far from God. And their obedience was not prompt or sincere or glad. It was an obedience that they had built as an armor against God so that God could not come in and have a love relationship with them. They did not want that. And isn't the lesson that religion itself can become a way of rebelling against God? Religion itself can become a way of rebelling against God. And we have people here, including myself, who are involved in ministry, missions of some sort, and even that can become a way of keeping God and his claims from our lives. We can have this heart of self-sufficiency that I don't need God. He needs me but I don't need him. That is a frightening thought, me needing God. And we can have cold, bitter, arrogant hearts filled with resentment and bitterness against God. I don't owe God rent. God owes me rent. That is the spirit of religion. And that is what Jesus has come to challenge So this owner has sent servant after servant after servant after servant after servant. Many servants have come and been rejected by these evil tenants. And then Jesus in verse 6 tells us this. The landlord had one left to send. One left. A son whom he loved. He sent him last of all saying, they will respect my son. So here we are. There are no more servants left to send. The house has been empty. There is no one left to send except one person, the son. It's the final appeal of the landlord, the very last one. No one else is going to be after the son. He is the last in line, and he is the one who is sent. Not an agent, not a servant, 
the son and the heir of the vineyard. And he is the one person beside the landlord himself who has full legal rights over the property. According to Jewish law, this vineyard belonged just as much to the son and heir as it did to his father. And he was able to come and negotiate and sign on his own authority. So now we're done. We're done with third parties. We're done with agents. We're done with servants. Now is the time for direct action. And the landlord himself in the person of his son is going to the vineyard. Now, you don't need to be a genius to see that the son represents Jesus himself in this parable. Notice that word that Jesus uses, the son whom he loved. You might remember in Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1, this is my beloved son. And when Jesus is transfigured, this is the son whom I love. Listen to him, the voice says out of the clouds. The son that God loves has been sent. He's no mere servant. He's no mere agent. He's no mere prophet. Jesus is not a second Elijah, a second Isaiah, a second Jeremiah. He is the son, and he is equal in honor and authority to God himself. It's just as if God himself has come to the world. And notice, this son, he's sent on a mission of reconciliation. Amazingly, this landlord still desires to be reconciled to his tenants. There's no fault on his end. He has been a good landlord, but he still desires, and he is still appealing for these wicked, thieving, murderous, and contemptuous tenants of his to repent and come into right relationship with him. The son has not been sent to condemn the world, but to save the world. There's going to be a time of judgment, but not quite yet. The son is on an errand of mercy. Don't destroy yourselves, is what Jesus has come to say. He has come to these very priests, these very scribes, these very elders. Don't destroy yourselves. Don't choose death. Choose me. Choose life. The way is still open. Incredibly, the way is still open after all this. The way back to God is still open. And whatever you've done, whatever shame you might be holding, whatever secret guilt might be in your heart, God has sent Jesus to this world for you to say, the way is still open. However badly you might have acted towards God, there is one final messenger who has been sent. Jesus, God's own son, has been sent to you and to me to appeal to us to say, be reconciled to God. God values this reconciliation so much that he sends his own son into the world. After all these prophets have been rejected and murdered, God sends his own son to sinners like us because he wants us to repent and turn to him. Jesus is the pleading face of God's love for this world. Surely they will respect my son, the landlord says. And God still says today, surely he will respect my son. Surely she will listen 
to the voice of my son. It's the hopefulness of God for our repentance. But the tenants have been emboldened by their treatment, their rejection, their murder of agent after agent. And they misread the incredible patience and forbearance of the landlord. They misread that as him being weak and ineffectual. And they begin to believe this guy is kind of timid. He's not, he's not going to do anything. He's not going to come with any kind of anger or power towards us. We can act with impunity, and there will be no bad consequences for our actions. So there they are. They're up in the watchtower, and they recognize the sun coming toward the vineyard. And they turn to each other and say, guys, guys, this is the air. And instead of that being a matter of terror for them, it's this evil hope that rises in their hearts. Come on, let's kill this guy. And the inheritance will be ours. We'll get to keep the vineyard. Now, I have to say, it's really hard to see how on earth these guys figured this. How on earth would killing the heir give them legal possession to the vineyard? And Jesus' parable is, to be honest, it's becoming increasingly hard to take seriously, which is exactly Jesus' point. These tenants are acting with incredible foolishness. These guys are delusional, just as delusional and just as foolish as these leaders who are hardening their hearts against Jesus and just as foolish as anyone who thinks they can resist God and resist God and resist God and get away with it in the end. It's not going to happen. And so these tenants, they take the son, they kill him, and then they throw him out of the vineyard. Not only do they murder the son, they desecrate his corpse. They shove the corpse over the wall. They dump it in the road to be eaten by dogs and birds. The ultimate show of contempt for the landlord. They have no fear of the landlord and any justice that he might bring. And here is Jesus, the last week of his life, speaking of the crucifixion. The shadow of the cross is already falling across Jesus' face. And Jesus is under no illusions about how things are going to end. The disciples are under illusions. The crowds are under illusions. But Jesus, as we see him telling this parable, he knows he is already being rejected. He is going to die. And even as Jesus is telling this story, the son is in the vineyard. And the tenants ominously are gathering around him. And the way of escape is fast closing for Jesus. And he is going to be killed. And then Jesus asks his audience this rhetorical question. Given all this, this terrible way that the landlord has been treated, how do you guys think? that he is going to act against the tenants. This owner, this landlord has lost everything. He's lost his vineyard. He's lost his investment. He's lost his rent. He's lost his servants. And worst of all, he has lost his son. His patience, his mercy, his long-suffering have been treated with contempt. He has been spat upon again and again. How is he going 
to react. And Jesus says what can only be the answer, that this landlord is going to come, he is going to kill those tenants, and he's going to give the vineyard to others. These farmers have made a terrible miscalculation. They have misjudged terribly, and their wicked plans end inevitably in their own death. Beware the anger of a patient man. And beware the anger of a patient God. God is long-suffering, and he is patient with people for year after year, for decade after decade, and with nations for century after century. But even the patience of God is not eternal. And there is a day when it will come to an end. There's a day when the opportunity to turn back to God is going to come to an end for all of us. And Jesus here is warning these religious leaders, and he's warning all of us today, you cannot play games with God forever. You can get away with your stuff for a long time. You can get away with your stuff in your church and in your marriage and in your family for a long, long time, for year after year after year. And you may convince yourself that God hasn't noticed or that God is allowing it and he has no anger against it and he's not going to respond, but God will respond. What you misinterpret as God being weak and ineffectual is God's grace grace and patience in your life. It's easy to ignore his messengers, but there is a day coming when all accounts will be settled. The rent must be paid. We all must pay it. And we can pay it willingly or we can pay it unwillingly, but we must pay it. Right now, we are in a time of God's grace. Second Peter says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some count slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God goes to incredible lengths. Just as the landlord in this story goes to, I must say, ridiculous lengths, far beyond what the most patient person would do, God goes to incredible lengths of patience because he wants everyone to come to a place of repentance. Whatever they've done, he wants them to turn to him. We have to look within our own hearts this afternoon and ask, are we making the same mistake as these tenants? The danger with these parables is we think Jesus is talking to someone else and we can safely ignore and skim past this convicting word of the Lord. But are we making the same mistake as these tenants? Doing our religious thing, doing our churchly thing, but withholding our hearts from God, indulging in some secret darkness, thinking that God will not bring us to account. So here is this depressing parable. And it seems like it's about to end like a morbid Western movie, one of those really dark Westerns where at the end of the movie, the credits roll and there's just a big pile of bodies. And both gangs and both sides have all been shot. Everyone's dead. Is this how the story ends? Jesus, he's not quite finished. He's not quite finished his parable because he quotes from Psalm 118, the very psalm that was being sung by the crowd in the triumphal entry. And he quotes these two verses. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What the psalm is saying that 
what was abandoned as useless turns out to be the most essential, indispensable piece in the entire structure. There's actually a little pun going on in the Hebrew behind this because the word for stone in Hebrew is eben and the word for son is ben. So there was kind of a, there's kind of a play on words here. This is a well-known pun. Jesus was not the first one to make this play on words. The stone slash son, the builders rejected. Jesus is saying, I am going to be rejected. I am going to be murdered. But that is not the end of the story. That is not the end of the story. And G.A. Chadwick points out that Jesus often predicted his own death, but he never despaired of his kingdom. He often predicted his death, but he never, ever despaired of his kingdom. And what seems like the terrible end of the road for Jesus is just the beginning of a glorious new path that God has for him. And somehow, the parable doesn't explain. You'll have to read on to find out. But somehow, God is going to vindicate Jesus. He is going to honor him and give him the most central and the most vital role in this new temple that God is building. You can see the cornerstone in the temple in Jerusalem back from back in the time of King Herod. It's an 80-ton slab of rock. The cornerstone was a massive, massive stone that the weight of the whole temple rested upon. Jesus is the one indispensable stone in God's temple, the one indispensable stone. We are all dispensable. We are not the ones that the temple is resting on. The kingdom does not rest, does not pivot on our shoulders. And these leaders thought they were indispensable, that they could act with impunity because God had given them authority and the vineyard depended on them. They were not indispensable. We are not indispensable. Graveyards are filled with indispensable men and women. But Jesus, who lives forever, is the one indispensable person. And Jesus goes on to quote the psalm, The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done this. This rejection, this murder was not unforeseen. It was not a surprise for God. Where he's like, oh my goodness, we're going we're to have to go to plan B and change everything now. It was not unforeseen. Somehow, in a mysterious way, it was part of God's plan from the beginning. It was used for God's glory. We just sung, he lived to die, rejected and alone. The son came into the world. He walked into the vineyard knowing exactly what would happen to him. He was not naive. He knew he was going to die and he was sent to die. The Lord has done this. The rejection and murder of the son was not a terrible accident. It was more than a tragic crime. It was God's ultimate mercy to rebels, the hinge on which all of salvation would turn. So Jesus tells this devastating parable, and the leaders know, they know darn well that Jesus is telling this story against them. They're not moved to repentance. Their hearts are hardened, and they immediately begin looking for a way to arrest Jesus and murder the landlord's son. You know, the lie that we so foolishly believe, that all of us here are tempted to believe, is that God's ownership and God's lordship are a threat to me. We feel like God's lordship is a threat to us, that it threatens my freedom, it threatens my dignity, 
and it threatens my happiness. And it doesn't always feel like good news to us when someone says, Jesus is Lord. That can feel like bad news for us because we are believing a lie. And falling for that lie cost Adam and Eve paradise. It cost these tenants this beautiful vineyard, and it will cost you everything worth living for. The truth is that the lordship of Jesus guarantees true freedom, the freedom to be who God created you to be. The lordship of Jesus underwrites true dignity, the dignity of being a son or daughter of God. And the lordship of Jesus guarantees everlasting joy, the joy of looking into the face of infinite love, of a God who pursues and pursues and pursues because he wants us in his family. And as we reflect on this parable, these things are written for our instruction. We must beware of hardening our hearts and becoming rebellious against God, of withholding all that we are and all that we have from God's good ownership. See, we can obey, but we can so often obey in a reluctant and begrudging way. As a father, I'm not blessed when my children obey reluctantly and begrudgingly. That's not the obedience I'm looking for. Give me your heart, my son, is what every father and mother cries, and it's what God cries for us. And even worse than reluctant obedience, we all probably have secret areas in our hearts that we are withholding from God's lordship that we want to hold on to for ourselves. God, you can have this, and you can have this, and you can have this, but don't you dare touch this area of my life or this part of my heart. God has come to break every chain, everything that enslaves us, even the idols that we have been deceived into thinking are our true freedom. He has come to destroy that because he loves us. He sent his son to pursue reconciliation and through his rejection and death to open the way back to the Father's house. That is what Jesus has come to do. So, in response, I feel like we need to take a little more time of silent prayer this afternoon. I know we've had our little time of confessions and assurance, and that's good, but can we bow our heads and open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit and allow him to dig into our hearts, ask him to forgive you, to cleanse you, to change you, and to break the lies that make his lordship feel like a threat instead of life itself. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.